0: Hi all, welcome to this new episode of my podcast, A Digital Tomorrow. Today I'm joined by Professor Douglas Arner. Douglas Arner is the Kerry Holdings Professor in Law at the University of Hong Kong and an expert on financial regulation, particularly the inter- intersection between law, finance and technology. He's a very well-known uh, professor uh, and for example, just to give you an idea, uh, he's among the top 250 authors in the world by total downloads so uh, douglas uh, welcome to, to my episode to my show
1: many thanks royal great to be here
0: well it's my pleasure um first of all before like um like uh digging deeper into the topics that we want to discuss i think we should start with your uh, personal journey so if you could like uh, briefly uh, tell me a bit more about your personal journey for example what made you decide to enter this, uh, this world of uh, fintech?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. It's something that uh, I've been working in this area uh, for a long time now. And I've always had uh, a strong interest in the interaction between um, finance and development and technology. You know, some of the first projects I worked on uh, back in the 1990s actually involved. Um, electronic payment systems in a number of countries uh, in Africa. And I think it's really interesting as we look at the role of finance in sort of broader sustainable development, the finance is interesting because it has both positive externalities. In other words, finance has benefits not just for the people involved, but from the standpoint of supporting wider economic participation and development more generally. So it has positive externalities. So it's something that you need finance. You want finance. We need to figure out ways to support it. But at the same time, finance has negative externalities. In other words, finance is subject to periodic crises. Uh, and if anything, crises are a feature of a market-based financial system. that We have crises every 10 years or so, uh, and this is something that we need to keep in mind, and as a result, when we're thinking about finance, it's something that has both positive benefits as well as risks. And very often, there is a strong interrelationship between um, finance and technology. It's something that, if we look back over the past ten thousand years of human history, we can see that money, finance, technology are basically co-developmental. Think about uh, money, for instance. Money evolving from uh, stone disks in early settled civilizations about 10,000 years ago. Metal coins with the advent of states and metallurgy. We can see emerging paper money for the first time in China uh, about 10,000 years ago. About 700 years ago, the emergence of bills of exchange, letters of credit, uh, of checks, We can see at the end of the 19th century the emergence of the telegraph and one of the first messages that gets sent across the telegraph is a payment instruction we can think about the 20th century a process of electronification across the first half of the century and digitization really from the 1960s the atm in 1967 The rise of SWIFT in the early 1970s, we can think about real-time gross settlement systems across the 80s, 1990s, mobile payment systems, M-Pesa in Kenya in 2007, Alipay and WeChat Pay uh, in the context of China. In parallel, the emergence of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in the aftermath of the 2008 global financial crisis, finally emerging as fast payment systems, stable coins, and central bank digital currencies in the past couple of years. And that's 10,000 years of the evolution of money and technology. And what we see throughout all of those periods is this interactions between the positive aspects and the risks and it's really these things that have drawn me over the past 25 years uh, to focus uh on this interaction between um finance technology and regulation
0: mm-hmm. well thank you very much for sharing your uh, your journey uh, with all uh, um, of my listeners and well i think now it's time to talk about uh, what's happening so let me rephrase this um as you know uh, we are living turbulent times i mean we've been through a pandemic which is not over yet i mean it's improved in many ways but the pandemic is still there to some extent and then as you know uh, well now we're going through some uh, conflict. so i'm not going to talk about uh, politics or geopolitics but of course everything that happens either in the uh, in the area of uh, pandemics wars has an effect on finance on the present and future of finance so this is why i wanted to ask you like from the point of uh, your areas of expertise you no know, uh, mm-hmm. law finance technology what's happening now and more importantly what will happen next what's going to come after this whole uh, well mess that we are uh, going through right now
1: yeah thanks for that oil and i think that's exactly right it's it's very useful to think about sort of your bigger picture trends and processes and then try to use that to gain a better understanding of what is happening around you and also what you might see going forward. And I think if we think about the decade of the 2010s, the last decade, I think we can say that global finance was really fundamentally driven by three big developments, three big themes. The first of those was crisis, in particular, the 2008 global financial crisis. And if we think about global finance across the last decade, many aspects were really driven by the experiences of that crisis, its aftermath, and the responses to that crisis. The second, which was very much one of the core responses to that crisis, is regulation. And it's something that in the aftermath of every crisis, there is an attempt to build regulatory systems to prevent a repeat of that crisis. And that's a process of learning of human civilization. But if we think of the 2008 crisis, it was a big crisis and it led to an absolute explosion in numbers, scope, depth, of regulation all across the world. And that fundamentally has transformed finance. And the third was really technology. I mentioned these sorts of big picture technological trends, but if we think about the decade of the 2010s, the last decade, technology and finance was really about the application of a range of new technologies to finance. You can think about cloud you can think about blockchain you can think about big data analytics artificial intelligence etc and this was the idea of basically taking a range of new technologies applying it to finance. And we see not only a range of new business models, but we see a range of new entrants, especially the whole FinTech movement and the creation of a whole range uh, of new startups coming from different directions and applying new technologies to do finance in a different way. And really those three factors meant that by the end of the 2010s, the global financial system and the financial system in particular in developing countries such as China and India fundamentally looked different than it had 10 years before, absolute transformation. And I think as we look at the 2020s, I think that it's really three big themes that are driving finance across the 2020s. The first is technology. But when we think about technology in the 2020s, I think we're thinking about technology in a very different way than we were previously. In other words, technology today is absolutely transformative. Think about something like uh, a central bank digital currency or a global stable coin. You know, if had Facebook's proposal for Libra actually launched as a digital currency usable by billions of people all across the world, That's not just new technology changing finance. That would have been a major transformation of the way that every aspect of money and finance worked. That's a different scope and scale of technology. Similarly, if we think about uh, Ant Financial in China, had the IPO gone ahead, had that sort of networked platform model gone ahead, Ant was in the process of absolutely dominating, not just finance, but data across the Chinese economy and potentially much more broadly. That is absolutely transformative. And of course, if we think about the impact of COVID on digitization, that COVID driven digitization has dramatically accelerated all of these trends, which we encapsulate as the fourth industrial revolution, to an entirely new scope and scale. So we're thinking about technology in the 2020s, we're thinking about much more transformative, much bigger scope and scale. Second, I think at the beginning of the 2020s, it was clear that sustainable development was going to be a major theme. Uh, There was already increasing focus uh, on climate change. There was, in particular, if we think about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 2030 target meant that it was going to be a a major focus. But I think the two years of the COVID pandemic has fundamentally refocused thinking of policymakers as well as people all across the world. Because as a pandemic, as a health crisis, COVID is fundamentally a sustainability crisis. And as a result, we've seen this new focus and attention. And if we think of this from the standpoint of finance, one of the biggest impacts of COVID from the standpoint of finance has not just been digitization, but the realization of how important digital finance is in providing resilience to sustainability crises going forward. And I think the situation both with COVID as well as with Ukraine and also the context of climate change and increasing climate disasters is something that is only going to accelerate this focus on sustainability across the 2020s. And the third really big trend is an ongoing tension between uh, globalization and fragmentation. We could really see this In the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, in particular with Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, but I think the global response and the politicization of that to COVID-19 has really driven these forces of fragmentation versus globalization to a new level. And of course, if we look at Ukraine, this is definitely one of the biggest potential impacts uh, is from the standpoint of fragmenting um, the global economy, the global financial system. And so I think as we look at the 2020s, Our third big theme is this idea of tensions between globalization uh, and fragmentation. And I think as we think in these sort of big picture terms, we can then look at each of the pieces, and often those are just one aspect of an ongoing process.
0: Well, you mentioned like many interesting ideas um, about which we could like talk for long. Um, There is a one in particular about which I would like to talk now, and it's that idea that you just mentioned now about uh, fragmentation versus uh, globalization. Um, Mm -hmm. It's true that we can see this tension right now, this tension is there, it's actually very active. So I wanted to ask you, do you think that we are Going towards a much more uh, fragmented world? I mean, in other words, for example, do you think that the global economy is going to de dollarize? Because we are seeing, for example, the rise of uh, CBDCs. And I know that CBDCs are not designed uh, necessarily for that. But well, I mean, some people say, and I mean, they might be true, that, for example, a strong digital yuan might help the yuan uh, become a more internationally used. Um, currency in international trade. So I wanted to ask you whether you think we are moving towards this uh, much more uh, fragmented world.
1: Yeah, you know I think there the are a number of interesting pieces there. Um, and the first is really around this idea of central bank digital currencies. You know, it's something that over the past uh, really two years, um, there has been an explosion of interest in central bank digital currencies and I think we can think of this one aspect is the evolution of distributed ledger technology uh, and the fact that central banks uh, are always looking at how they can use new technologies to build better money in payment systems it's probably the area of technology that central banks know the best is payments technology so central banks including the People's Bank of China I've been following blockchain and distributed ledger technology for an extended period i think the second factor that really drove it was that announcement by facebook in 2019 mm-hmm. uh, of its plan to create its own uh, private digital currency and i think this is something that if we look at bitcoin bitcoin at least for major economies and major currencies, has so far not emerged really as a real competitor, alternative, or threat. Um, But something like Libra was seen immediately by major economies as something that was very much a real potential threat, a real potential alternative. Uh, And, So you see a very strong reaction, both from the regulatory side, as well as logically from building systems. We see uh, the People's Bank of China in the months after Facebook's announcement, announcing that it is going to be rolling out national pilots uh, of its system, then called uh, the Digital Currency Electronic Payment System, now generally known uh, as the ECNY. And then, of course, COVID and its digitization and the essential role that electronic payments have played in both lockdowns as well as in government responses to the crisis has really driven forward efforts all across the world from the standpoint of looking at central bank uh, digital currencies. And so I think when we think about CBDCs, it's important to keep in mind that sort of background as we think about the situation with Ukraine right now. The second aspect that I think is, is really important to focus on is that over the past two decades in particular, we have seen the evolution uh, of an increasingly multipolar uh world. Uh, We can think about the economies of the US, the EU, China, increasingly of similar sizes. Uh, And I think there's a question about dynamics going forward. Um, But uh, from my standpoint, I think we're likely to, to be in a world where for much of this century, there is an approximate equivalence in economic size between those major powers, perhaps uh, with India joining as a fourth uh, by the, the middle of the century. And what that highlights is that from the standpoint of the global economy as well as the global political system, that we are increasingly in a multipolar world, and that there is no single player that is able to dominate that. And that, is at the heart of some of these geopolitical tensions that we've been talking about. And one aspect of this clearly goes to uh, monetary arrangements. And if we look at history, we can say that almost throughout human history, there has generally been a small number, one or a small number of monetary instruments which dominate cross-border transactions. It's simple efficiency. It's just easier if you're doing cross-border transactions, if you have a common denominator, whether that is Roman coins, Chinese coins, Spanish coins, the the sort of silver dollar that dominated all of Asia for several hundred years, gold uh, and sterling, or the U.S. dollar. That's simple convenience. It's just easier to have A small number of currencies where people are can easily think on a a cross border basis. So having a single currency that is most widely used is both a reflection of convenience, um, but also uh, there's the expression of that from the standpoint of geopolitics and as we emerge into a more multipolar world, we can expect those major economies will be prefer to deal increasingly in their own currencies. I think at best, you're likely to see a situation where there are two, three major currencies that people frequently engage across. Now where technology really enters into this, I think is from two different directions. The first is the technology makes it easier to deal with cross currency arrangements. Um, in other words, The advent of technology means that if we build systems that make it easier to do cross-currency transactions, we can think across more currencies. And so that provides a framework where we could see perhaps unusually a larger number of domestic currencies in use internationally. The second really focuses on that dynamic you mentioned around Ukraine. Uh, And there has been particularly over the past Uh, 20 years, but really in the entire um, Bretton Woods period from the end of the Second World War, of the way in which the U.S. has at various times used the dominance of the U.S. dollar to basically enforce U.S. political ends. Uh, And I think... We've seen this accelerate over the past 20 years. And so it has been a sort of rising issue. And as you see the rise of multipolar major players, there is often a situation where there is less and less comfort with this. And I think when we look at Ukraine, this is something where there is this tension between the efficiency of using a system versus the sort of different geopolitical views versus perhaps the fact that new technologies might make it easier to actually move away from the traditional efficiencies in a largely dominant unit. So where all of that goes is to say that yes, absolutely we could see a situation where uh, the conflict in Ukraine, And the very active use, particularly of electronic payments and finance from the standpoint uh, of a large number of governments, it has to be said, uh, could accelerate movements towards a more multipolar monetary and payment system.
0: Um, Well, talking about now uh, about uh, multipolar and and, and fragmentation, there is one area though which is. I think, as globalized as it can be in that area, is uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, Mm. Of course, not every country uh, regulates cryptocurrencies in the same way, I mean, whereas some countries like China have adopted a much more uh, tougher stance towards uh, this um, new uh, idea of cryptocurrencies, then uh, some other countries are being much more flexible. So I know it depends on each country, but generally speaking, they are becoming quite mainstream and global, to the point that, for example, uh, very recently, uh, the US seems to have uh, become even much more friendly than before. So I wanted to ask you, what role do you think that cryptocurrencies will play in the future of finance? And how do we make sure that cryptocurrencies, um, well, do not um, do not miss a country's uh, financial stability uh, goals?
1: Yeah, No, I think this is a really interesting question. I think it's also interesting that in some ways, if we look at cryptocurrencies, they're no longer really new. Um, You know, Bitcoin white paper comes out in 2008 in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, launches in 2009, you know, that's 13 years ago. So when we think about it, this is no longer something that is sort of brand new. Uh, And it's had quite a period Uh, to evolve. And I think it's interesting from a a number of angles. First is if we think about the evolution that Bitcoin in particular, uh, its original um, rationale was as a direct alternative, a direct competitor to fiat monetary systems. Uh, A view that governments and government issued monies had fundamentally been a failure And what we needed was a technological alternative uh, that worked better. And I think if we look at cryptocurrencies, that is still one aspect. But it's also been interesting that we see emerging around 2013, 2014, uh, the first stable coins. You know, we talked about Libra, but we see the evolution of other stable coins starting. And basically the idea of a stable coin is you are linking uh, a cryptocurrency to a fiat currency, which of course is antithetical to the original idea uh, of Bitcoin, but from the standpoint of many participants who want to be able to link cryptocurrencies to fiat currencies and the traditional financial system, they've played a very big and important role. And it's always been my view that from the standpoint of cryptocurrencies, digital assets more generally, that in order for the market to really succeed, eventually it needs to be integrated with the traditional financial system. And for that to happen, eventually it has to be largely subject to the same sorts of regulations from a financial stability standpoint, uh, from a market integrity standpoint, uh, from a consumer and investor protection standpoint. And I think what we've seen has been a sort of battle over the past 10 years where in some jurisdictions, regulators have largely left it alone in others, such as China, they've taken a, a very strong, and in fact, China's approach started out a little hands-off, but over time has gotten more and more severe uh, from the standpoint of trying to repress, eliminate, uh, and even eventually with the central bank digital currency, provide a government-based alternative to digital currencies for use in the context of blockchain-based systems. So one of my views was that actually 2021 we're going to be a period whereby we are going to see a sort of normalization of cryptocurrencies and digital assets in most of the world's markets where they would be brought into the traditional regulatory system and I think that started to happen uh, with the FATF's VASP rules, it started to happen with uh, the EU's uh, markets in crypto assets regulation proposal, but then 2021 saw a very high level of expansion and volatility in cryptocurrency and digital asset markets. In fact, digital finance much more broadly experienced a tremendous growth, uh, popularization and volatility. And as a result of those experiences, I think that regulators across the world have decided that it really is necessary to regulate Uh, cryptocurrencies and digital assets along the same lines as finance. Uh, Some like China taking a very restrictive approach, but everyone building some sort of system. Most recently, we see just the second week of March uh, of 2022, uh, the US president signing in an executive order to basically build uh, a comprehensive regulatory scheme. So it's something that is happening everywhere, but there's a careful balancing because regulators don't want to trigger the crisis they're trying to prevent. So they're going in carefully, but with the full objective uh, of bringing digital assets into the normal regular financial system. And from my standpoint, I think that this over time is likely to support the greatest benefits from the use of digital assets more broadly.
0: And well, I mean, you mentioned now the idea of uh, regulations, and you are an expert on regulations and rec tech. So I wanted to ask you, like, in general why are regulations necessary? And I'm not just talking about cryptocurrencies. I mean, I can talk about cryptos like we were talking now. I can be referring to, uh, I don't know, digital sandboxes, artificial intelligence in general, when it comes to uh, finance, technology, why do we need regulations? Because I know that some people actually claim the opposite. Some people say that uh, regulations are kind of a hassle, but I mean, I think we need them, so why?
1: Yeah, you know, it's I mentioned that that idea of of history and the role of crises and regulation. And if we think about market-based finance, uh, the classic idea is it's the best system, it's the worst system, but it's the best one we've come up with so far. And it seems that uh, crises are a fundamental asset uh, aspect of market-based finance. And so if we're going to have crises, if this is a sort of negative externality, but finance has positive externalities, it makes sense to build systems which try to reduce the likelihood of crises happening, and when they do happen, to make them less severe. And this is really our first aspect of financial regulation. It's what you would call financial stability. It's about preventing crises. And one only needs to think about the history of financial crises to realize, that they happen over and over again. And one only needs to think about how bad 2020 and 2021 would have been if we had a collapse of the financial system at the same time that our health systems and our economies were collapsing. And one of the reasons that didn't happen was all of those efforts to put in place more capital requirements, more liquidity, more supervision, better financial infrastructure in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. So that's the first, is really because finance is subject to crises, and crises are something that we don't like to see. The second really has to do with the idea that we want markets to function. And if you think about it, at the heart of much of regulation is actually making markets function better. Think about something like disclosure. We have disclosure to make it easier for people to easily compare different financial instruments and different financial products. Imagine that you're trying to invest in something and you have two companies in two countries that have completely different accounting systems. It makes it almost impossible to understand what you're looking at in the differences. And this is something that if we think of something uh, like sustainability and ESG taxonomies, one of our real risks is that everyone makes up their own way of looking at ESG and you end up with fragmentation. So one of the key reasons for regulation is actually to make markets work better, to have standardized approaches, to make data more easily comparable, which enables markets to function better. Our third, is really around the fact that, you know, in the classic statement attributed to a famous American bank robber in the 1930s called John Dillinger, why do you rob banks? And his reply, that's where the money is. And so when we're talking about finance, that's where the money is. Uh, and so they are a magnet for criminals and fraudsters. Uh, and as a result, um, if you want, to get people to put their money into markets, they have to trust those markets. That's to get that positive externality. And so you need someone who basically goes out and polices fraud, theft, misconduct. And if we look at financial regulations, some of the earliest aspects are about preventing fraud and theft, which makes people happy, but it also encourages to put their money in. The last one, is really the idea of market integrity. Market integrity is the idea that you don't want uh, criminals and terrorists to be able to use the financial system uh, to basically uh, clean up their money. Uh, And so when we think about AML regulation, we think about KYC systems, they're not there to add an expense for the financial industry they're there to reduce the criminal and terrorist use of the financial system. And this is something that if we think about these objectives, they're very valid reasons why we regulate finance. And at the end of the day, all of this is about supporting wider sustainable development because we want the financial system to have the positive externalities and reduce the negative externalities we want finance to make the world a better place, and not make it a worse place. Yeah.
0: No, indeed. Uh, I mean, I guess though that from the standpoint of a regulator or central banker, uh, I may be wrong, but I guess it must be much more difficult now compared to a few years ago, because when, for example, the uh, global financial crisis took place in 2008 and, and next years, uh, well, it feels like it was all quite different from now because now a central bank regulator doesn't only need to regulate what they used to regulate before. But on top of that, they got all these new areas that we mentioned now. I mean, there are cryptocurrencies, there are uh, other blockchain related um, uh, products. I mean, the, the world is much more digital. No? I mean, which is it, it's amazing. It's great. But at the same time, I guess it makes their, their job a little bit more difficult than before.
1: No doubt. And that's that's absolutely 100%. And If you think about uh, the world of financial regulation uh, prior to the 2008 financial crisis, it was, as you say, a lot simpler. Everyone had kind of a common agreed framework. understanding what you were doing you were thinking about market failures you were thinking about correcting market failures from the standpoint of regulation you were thinking about efficient markets Uh, and you were thinking about sort of uh, a paradigm of rational behavior amongst market participants and 2008 really fundamentally changed that and honestly There isn't, there hasn't been a sort of replacement from the standpoint uh, of a common consensus about why we do things um, other than that framework that I just highlighted of these regulatory objectives. The second, as you mentioned, is very much the technologies. And this is something that, you know, technological change over the past decade has just been incredible. Uh, And from the standpoint of central bankers and regulators, yeah this has made their their lives a lot more complicated. From my standpoint though, it's made life a lot more interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. We have all of these new things to look at uh, and yeah, there are bad things about it, but there are also some very, very good things uh, about it. And I think finally, the last bit is is exactly the point that you make that um, prior to 2008, the global financial services industry was a pretty homogeneous industry. And in the aftermath with the the involvement of all of these fintechs, tech fins, new entrants, new technologies, lots of people who were not coming from sort of that same homogeneous background. And that's made it much more difficult from the standpoint of of central bankers and regulators to deal with uh, the population that they're trying to, to work with. And so, yeah, 100%, I think. Uh, It's gotten uh, a lot more complicated, but from my standpoint, that is actually one of the the wonderful things about finance. Um, There's always something new happening, uh, and that um, keeps it interesting. The downside is they often result in crises, so you're often looking at something uh, from one side on the way up, and you're often looking at it from the other uh, on the way back down.
0: No, I mean, I fully agree with you. I think that um, from the standpoint of a regulator, it must be much more difficult now. But uh, at least from my own standpoint right now, I feel like uh, it's much more fascinating than before. No? I mean, having so many different like, uh, concepts, ideas, products, as you said before, I mean, FinTech, tech, Fin, and anything related to that, I think it makes the world much more interesting, albeit uh, risky in some ways, no? because I mean we're talking in some cases about uh, new areas. That I mean, we don't know exactly how they're going to work out. Uh, like, for example, I don't know, like those BNPL by now, pay later companies. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting concept, but there are many downsides to it, no? So I think, uh, I mean, it makes the whole payments area fascinating to see these new products. But at the same time, I think it raises many, I'm not going to say threats, but maybe questions.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. But it keeps it interesting.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And, well, uh, I think we are uh, almost running out of time, so before wrapping this up, I wanted to ask you whether you have like, any final thoughts about what we discussed, about the future of finance or fintech, anything that you wanted to, to share as a final remark to our audience?
1: Yeah, you know, I think this decade of, of the 2020s is going to be uh, a very important one uh, from the standpoint of the evolution uh, of our world. Uh, And it's something that 2030, um, from the standpoint of the Sustainable Development Goals, from the standpoint of of climate change, is not very far away. Uh, And the the challenges of COVID uh, over the past two years, um, the Ukraine conflict at the beginning uh, of this year, all of these things uh, make it even more difficult uh, to hit those objectives. And I think it's very important for all of us to realize um, that uh, we do have some of these big picture objectives that if we don't keep them in mind if we don't manage to focus our energies on that the consequences can be really even more dire than the consequences we've seen over the past couple of years
0: i agree i agree with you uh, well thank you very much douglas for for uh, having this discussion with me for coming to my show
1: Thanks very much, Royal. Really thanks uh, for the invitation and uh, enjoyed the the discussion. Look forward to the next time.
0: Well, it's been an absolute honor, an absolute pleasure. And well, to all my listeners, uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. And please stay tuned for the next ones. Bye.